from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who chose for some reason to follow the Baha'i way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Jeff Bonhoeff a Baha'i musician and musical producer who moved around a lot growing up, going to about 12 different schools. He became a Baha'i after marrying Maya, who was a Baha'i. For her interview, you can go to my website, www.abahaiperspective.com. It was the Baha'i book, Thief in the Night, by William Sears, that led Jeff to becoming a Baha'i. Jeff talks about filk music, as did Maya in her interview. I started the interview by asking Jeff to describe his growing up years. I actually didn't grow up in any particular place. Um, When I was a kid, we moved around a lot. Um, I sat down once and figured out that between the time I started kindergarten and graduated from high school, I'd attended actually 12 different schools. Wow. So we lived a fair amount in Southern California, um, a little bit in Northern California. I lived in Germany. I lived in Boston. So... I, I can't really say that there was a place that, that I grew up, but I think that for the most part, other than when I lived in, in Germany, I, I think I grew up in kind of a suburban environment for the most part around Southern California and in the Boston area. So I, I guess that was sort of the, the basic environment I grew up in in a lot of different places. And what caused you to move around so much, Jeff? My father was a flight navigator, which um, is a job that doesn't exist anymore. And actually, at the, at the point when I was growing up, it was sort of at, at the tail end of airlines using um, human flight navigators. They were all transitioning to um, inertial guidance, which is a, a, an automated system for uh, determining the position of an aircraft. So basically... At that point, we were moving around, sort of following jobs to where there were airlines that still were using human navigators. Hmm. What took your father to Germany? Well, that was actually the last job he had as a navigator. We, um, we, he had been flying for a, an airline called World Airways based out of Oakland, and we lived in, um, in Northern California during that time. And... That job ended. Um, World made their transition to inertial guidance and laid off all their navigators, and, and we actually moved down to Southern California. And my, my dad was, this was in about 1970 or so, and my dad actually went to um, computer programming school, and he was studying to be a computer programmer, which I don't think he, I don't think he really cared much for it. He, I mean, he mm-hmm. seemed very happy during that period, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And um, an opportunity came along, Lufthansa, the uh, national carrier for Germany needed some navigators for the short term, and they didn't want to hire directly. They didn't want to hire Germans to do it because they were already in the process of retraining their existing German navigators to other jobs. 
rather than just laying them off outright, but they had a short-term need, so they contracted with an American company to hire some American flight crews for a few years. So my dad was uh, heard about that and decided to do navigation for at least a few more years before he settled on something else, and so uh, we went off to Germany. So what is a flight navigator? Well, he used to use um, different means, I mean, including, you know, very archaic stuff like sextants and, you know, uh, taking sightings of stars to, 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 to manually plot the position of the airplane in flight on, a tra- on transatlantic in flight. Mm-hmm. Basically, when an airplane is not flying over land, there needs to be some means of determining its position. It's now all completely automated. There, there are no airlines left that use flight navigators, but at the time, there was a human being who there was actually in the old in the airliners. That, you know, my dad was, was working on uh, Boeing 707s at the end of his career, and there was actually a little, little kind of bubble in the top of the cockpit where he could stick his head up and take star readings with a sextant and... and they had other means, too. There was kind of a primitive radio control system called Loran that they used to, to um, make calculations. But, you know, it was the position of the airplane was actually determined by, by a guy in the cockpit, you know, every you know, half hour or so to figure out whether they were still on course. Hmm. So they had three people then, uh, the co- pilot, co-pilot, and then the flight navigator? Actually, there were four. There was also a, a, a guy... Um, called the flight engineer whose job it was the planes were a lot less automated the instrumentation was a lot more primitive and there was a guy whose job it was to make sure that the the fuel usage was okay and that you know the hydraulics were working and so it was actually a four-member flight crew at the time well but yeah nowadays i think it's pretty much all just you know two people pilot and most of the modern airliners right interesting yeah so how old were you while you were in germany um, let's see, we moved to Germany, I think, in early 1971, so I had probably, I had just turned 12. Mm-hmm. And how long were you in Germany? We were only in Germany, actually, for, let's see, we moved back in September of 72, so um, I guess, a, you know, a, a bit less than um, two years. Yeah. And basically what it, it, it the... My father was being paid by the American company that was contracting to Lufthansa, so we were being paid in dollars and paying U.S. Um, income taxes mm-hmm. and not paying German taxes, and the German parliament changed their, their tax law so that we were going to be double taxed. So mm-hmm. Lufthansa took all of their American flight crews and based them in the Boston area, which is how I ended up there. I see. Um, to avoid double taxation on, on the Americans' income, so... We were in, actually, that job actually lasted for about five years. We were in Boston for about three years Mm. um, before we moved back to Northern California when the Lufthansa job ended. Yeah, it's interesting. You knew so much about your father's situation at such a young age. Well, yeah, it was interesting because we would, I remember one of the things in Germany, you know, I have to confess that at the time, I mean, you know, 12 years old was kind of probably a bad age for me to get, you know, uprooted. I was in a German school, sort of trying to learn to speak German and keep up with my schoolwork at the same time. So mm. I felt, you know, kind of like I was, the, you know, the dummy in the class. Mm. And so I was, I was not terribly happy most of the time we were in Germany. I mean, in mm. retrospect, I, I'm glad I had the experience, but at the time mm. it wasn't too great. But I remember one of the great 
pleasures we had. And we didn't have television. Um, my parents never bought a TV while we were there, you know. And so for an American kid of that age, that was just at first, it was like, oh, my gosh. Right. You know, but, you know, we got over that. We listened to the radio and stuff. But one of the things we used to do is go out with the other American flight crews a lot, you know, mm. the other navigators and some of the flight engineers that Lufthansa hired. And, you know, almost every Friday night we'd go out to dinner and they would just sit around talking about, you know, things that had happened on their flights and, you know, mm. some of the, the you know, mis- miscalculations and mishaps that threw some of them off course and, you know, whatnot. So I was hearing about it all the time and yeah. I was really interested in it. So I up into the night listen to them tell their stories yeah so what interested you when you were a kid what interested me um i was really interested in astronomy and science when i was a little kid i thought i was going to grow up and be an astronomer hmm. i was not very athletic i enjoyed sports i loved to play baseball but i was really bad at it so i did little league for a couple of years when you know we lived in um Simi Valley in Southern California for a while, and I, I played a couple of years of Little League there, and I, I really liked it, but I was a, I was not a good player, and this was in the you know the less enlightened time when the kids who weren't very good just didn't get to play very much. Yeah, not like now where you know my kids have, have all played Little League, and everybody gets to play no matter what, and I, which I think is a lot better. So I gave up on that, but I you know just normal kid stuff really. But I was mm-hmm. I was kind of a, 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 a I guess a little science geek when I was a kid. I really liked astronomy and yeah. stuff like that. I loved, you know, to have like pet lizards and frogs and stuff like that. And I loved to read. Yeah. Now, when did you get into music? I got into music actually when we moved to Boston. Um, I fell in with a group of kids. I'd always wanted to play guitar. I can remember hearing guitar music from the time I was a little kid and going, "Boy, I wish I could do that," but mm. never really did anything about it. Mm-hmm. And when we moved to Boston. I was filling with a group of kids that, you know, where most of the other kids played guitar, and my dad had a kind of a crummy old guitar that my mom had bought him for his, for their 10th anniversary laying around the house. Hmm. And so he wasn't using it, and he didn't care whether I played it, so I sort of inherited that guitar and started hanging out with these guys that were playing guitar and just picked up things by watching them and, you know, and mm-hmm. just got very, very passionate about it, although at first I wasn't very good at all. I, I was yeah. not a natural at all. What age was that? This would have been, let's see, probably, I guess, about 14, mm-hmm. maybe 13, late 13, 14, something like that. Yeah. Did you ever put it down? No. Yeah. No, from the time I picked it up, I mean, I, I've never stopped. Yeah. So were you in any bands? I was in tons of bands. I remember yeah. I got, the last Christmas we were in Boston, my dad had, had been laid off and, you know, money mm-hmm. was tight, and yeah. I had started on this really, really bad acoustic guitar which was very hard to play um, that's kind of the ironic thing about the starter guitars that a lot of kids have is they're they're much harder to play than the better instruments so it's right. almost like a you know a discouragement to kids right. who are just starting out but i had saved up some money and bought myself a fairly decent acoustic guitar but i really wanted an electric guitar and i remember the last christmas before we moved my, i guess my parents decided it was going to be kind of the last hurrah for a while and mm. So they got me uh, an electric guitar for Christmas, and you know I got back to school after that Christmas and mentioned to some other kids I knew that I had an electric guitar, and I got invited to play rhythm guitar in a band mm. almost immediately, and I've been in bands almost. Yeah. So when did you leave home? When did I leave home? Um, actually, when I married Maya. Um, I stayed at home through school. I was My parents settled in 
Northern California after after we left Boston and started a business. And I lived with them through college. I commuted to um, Sacramento from Grass Valley. Mm-hmm. Did my four years of college and got my degree. And then I married Maya about a month after I graduated from uh, college hmm. and moved out of home at that point. Now, what did you study in college? Anthropology. Hmm. What were you hoping to do when you got out of school? I was hoping to be a rock star. <laughs> so why did you study anthropology? Well, you know, a lot of people asked me that. They said, well, why didn't you study music? And, it, you know, I, my thinking at the time, such as it was, was that um, I, I actually went into college as a journalism major. Mm-hmm. And I realized pretty early on that I didn't really want to be a journalist, and there was no point in studying it if you weren't going to use it. it it's not the sort of thing that really broadens your horizons. It's, it's, it's almost you know, vocational school type of thing, how to write a news story, how to do this, how to do that. Right. And I took an intro, you know, it's just part of the general requirement for graduation. You know, of course, there are all kinds of general classes you need to take. And yeah. I signed up for an intro to anthropology class, and I really liked the professor, and, I, and the, the subject just fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So I switched my major to anthropology, just figuring that, well, you know, at least it's, it's the kind of knowledge that kind of broadens your horizons you don't do anything with it. And yeah. I was convinced that, you know, that my and I's band was going to break big and we were going to be big, <laughs> big rock stars, so I might as well just study something that was interesting to me. So there was no real uh, shrewd plan at all. It was sort of just because it interested me. Yeah. Was it interesting to you for the whole four years? Oh, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I learned pretty early on. I mean, I had the, the professor who taught the, the, the first class I had was an extraordinary lecturer, and I had a little bit of a rude awakening the next semester. There was another required course I took from a professor who, who was just guaranteed to put you to sleep. But, you know, I was still interested in the subject, and, and you know, it had its ups and downs. But, yeah, I, I stayed very interested in it. I had lots of really good classes. It was really interesting. And I haven't kept up with it very well, so I'm sure most of what I learned is hopelessly out of date. I was, I was particularly interested in evolution and mm. primatology. Mm. I, I know that there have been a lot of discoveries and a lot of new theories on, on those areas that are probably put what I learned in school, you know, completely out of date, but it was interesting. Yeah. What was your religious upbringing like? Uh, non-existent, really. My mom is Jewish, although mm. she, just, she doesn't practice in any way, and I know that she was very um, upset, and she grew up in, in the Milwaukee area, and I think that they went to synagogue just a little bit, and she was, it was synagogue where the women were segregated from the men, from the men and mm-hmm. she was very offended by that. So mm-hmm. no real real training in that tradition. And my father's, I don't honestly don't know what his parents practiced. I think he was very briefly a Catholic in college himself and mm-hmm. didn't stay with that for long at all. I think a girl he was interested in was Catholic. And, yeah. You know, so really pretty non-existent. I remember yeah. once or twice my parents took us to a church, and I don't think my mom liked what she saw there, and it didn't yeah. last long. We went to Sunday school, I think, once or twice, and mm-hmm. um, I never went to synagogue or anything like that. Mm. What did you do when you got out of college? I was playing in the band with Maya and teaching guitar and working in music stores. Mm-hmm. And... Try- Trying to keep the bills paid, you know. Right. So uh, you and Maya were in a band while you were in yeah. college? Yeah. I I joined a band that Maya was in in fall of 1979, mm-hmm. just about two years before we got married. Yeah. 
they they had been a, a kind of a, an acoustic oriented band, kind of a folk band, and they, they were interested in moving in more of a rock direction. Mm-hmm. I had been playing in rock bands around the area for for years. I can remember it's funny. I can remember we were playing both both of our bands were playing at the at the county fair in uh, Nevada County. I think the year before I joined her band, maybe two years. And I remember I knew them around town because I worked in a music store in Nevada City, and you know I was familiar with them, and I knew that they were really an acoustic band. And the, the band I was playing at the time was really the first. We called it a heavy metal band, but you know by today's standards, it was it was a hard rock band. We were playing Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing we were playing at the fair and and. Maya and the other people from her band kind of came to see us, and I kind of thought to myself, what are they doing here? I mean, they're kind of acoustic folky. They probably think this music's just noise. Mm-hmm. And I was really shocked when they came up to me afterwards and were raving about how good they thought we were, and et cetera. And, mm-hmm. and they were in the process of thinking about moving more in that direction musically. Mm-hmm. And so the next year, our band played again, and it was kind of our final band. I was, I was in a band with a, a couple of other guys that were members of faith and one of them was about to go on his mission mm-hmm. so the band was breaking up and Maya said oh you ought to come see us play so you know the next Sunday night at the fair I came to see um, their group Talisman and went up to the stage to talk to Maya and, and the other people in the band afterwards and she just sort of said well you know we're playing this, this benefit concert in a couple of weeks why don't you come sit in with us so I was kind of looking for something else to do musically anyway so mm-hmm. uh <laughs> now, at what point did you find out that Maya was a Baha'i? Uh, pretty early on, no secret around the house. It, there was there were Baha'i books laying around all over the place, and uh, they talked about it. And a lot of the actually, a lot of the lyrics to the songs that they were writing were Baha'i oriented. So mm-hmm. um, I can't say that I really understood it all that well at first, but. I, I was aware that it was there, and, and I started pretty much immediately hanging out with their friends and right from the start, mm-hmm. pretty quickly to what it was about. Yeah, what was your initial impression of the Baha'i faith? Well, you know, at the time, I was I was kind of agnostic, leaning towards atheists, mm-hmm. and I, had a, I, I did not have a great opinion of organized religion, kind of the typical response to someone who you know, doesn't follow any particular faith. Mm-hmm. So I thought it sounded really nice, but I, I wasn't immediately thunderstruck by, oh, this is, you know, the Word of God, and I should follow this. I, I thought they were nice people, and I thought that the things that they believed in were things that I tended to agree with, mm-hmm. the social teachings and equality of men and women and uh, racial equality and all of, all of those things were, were nice to me, but it didn't just, it, it didn't hit me over the head the way it does some people. I guess I'm a little dense. I needed a little more time. Or maybe just a little more thoughtful. Well, <laughs> sure, if you want to give me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I'm willing to do that. <laughs> so what, what changed? Well, I don't know. It's interesting because we got married, and um, I was still not a Baha'i. Yeah. It's really funny. Is I can remember, I, I, I think, in some ways I can thank a, a friend of mine who was kind of a fundamentalist Christian, actually kind of a confused guy, but he one of the things that he was very into was, Armageddon, end of the world is coming type of fundamentalist Christianity. And I remember he, he had a, uh, we had a conversation about that and, you know, the number of the beasts and all, all the stuff that, 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 that has been read by some folks in 
into the, the book of Revelation. It kind of, you know, it's funny, it's why even when you don't believe, you hear this, this you know, kind of lurid story about all this terrible stuff that's on the verge of happening, and it shakes you a little bit, it scares you. So, you know, I think I've been carrying that around with me, just, you know, awareness of that, you know, belief being, in, you know, out there and people expecting that. And I was, I remember I was, at the time, I was working um, mostly in afternoons. I was teaching guitar, giving guitar lessons, so I was mostly doing it after, you know, after kids got out of school, because most of my students were school kids. And mm-hmm. so I was just home one morning. I was at work, and I picked up uh, A Thief in the Night by uh, William Sears. And for, I don't know why, I mean, I had never had any particular urge to pick up any of the Baha'i books. I mean, I, I, was, I supported my uh, following her faith. I didn't. I, I went to a lot of the, the events with her and stuff, the ones that were open to non-Baha'is, and encouraged her to go to feast. but I just really had zero interest in it myself. Right. And I don't even remember why I did. I mean, you know how sometimes you just walk over to a bookcase and grab a book that's been sitting there forever for no particular reason and start mm-hmm. reading it? Mm-hmm. I did that with that book, and by the time I got through it, and of course he deals a lot with the, with Christian prophecy and interpreting a lot of Revelation and Isaiah and Micah and the Book of Daniel in a very different way than, than most Christian groups do, and it just really struck me. And so when Maya got home, I kind of told her that I, you know, I'd read this book and I was very interested, and really within a few weeks I, I'd become a Baha'i. Mm. I think October of 1982. Okay. We've been married a little over a year at that point, about a year and a half. Yeah. So, are you still working at a music store? Oh no. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so, um, I, I work for a well-known computer and uh, media company. So, what did you do after your stint as a music store? Clerk. Um, I worked for about 10 years for my parents. They started a business. They actually started it in 1977, and while I was in school, as I recall, we had a particularly emotional breakup of the band we were in. Which, hmm? which, which band was this? Well, by, let's see, I'm trying to remember. I believe this was a band, this was a band called, it was still called Talisman. But it was completely different people by now. Maya and I were the only people left, you know. So Maya was the only original member left, and mm-hmm. it was actually some of the piece, some people from bands I had played with in the past, and other. You know, it, we went through many, many incarnations of, of yeah. that band. Actually, I would have to sit down and think to think how many sure. members right. came and went. But well, why um, was why was it an emotional break? Um, I don't know. We we had just you know it it always is you know a, a, a band can be a very very difficult thing to to keep together. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you know how how much work it is to have a relationship with two people, and, right. and you've got four or five involved, where you're working very intimately together. It, it can be really hard. Mm-hmm. And somebody, I, I don't remember exactly what the circumstances were, but um, somebody quit the band, and then somebody else quit too, and it was kind of just Maya and I again, and mm-hmm. we were just kind of upset about it and I remember actually I was working for one of the people who had quit the band at the music store and I wasn't making that much money so I kind of decided it was time to maybe go on and do something else so I was actually visiting my folks at their store and at this point they actually had two stores they had a lighting fixture shop and a wholesale electric shop and mentioned it and I don't know I don't remember whether I said oh maybe I should come work for you guys or if they offered to me but by the time I, I left that day I was starting work the next day for my parents. Mm. 
that ended up going on for about 10 years. And what did you do for them, for the business? It, you know, being a family-run business, I, I did a little of everything. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mostly, especially at first, I worked in the wholesale electric shop. I did ordering. I mm-hmm. did figured out the accounts at the end of every month. Mm-hmm. I waited on customers. Just a yeah. little bit of everything, really. Just a family business. And you were still doing music at the same time? Yeah. I was, you know, Ryan and I had quickly formed another band and mm-hmm. different people, and we kept, we kept playing music. And mm-hmm. Sure, I mean, I've never stopped playing music the entire yeah. time I've up the guitar right so those 10 years did your musical style change um i think it i wouldn't say it changed it evolved i mean mm-hmm. we were still playing rock music um mm-hmm. you know we, our our influences got maybe a little bit broader and mm-hmm. but we were still you know the stuff we were really into at the time i guess was kind of some of the 80s rock bands and groups like rush and you know, trying to do kind of progressive rock i guess mm-hmm so you're still doing cover band music type stuff? Yeah, well, we kind of went back and forth. I mean, when I joined Maya's band initially in 79, we were we were doing all originals, and then mm-hmm. it was hard to get gigs playing original music, especially paying gigs. So mm-hmm. we started doing covers, sort of, you know, telling ourselves, oh, well, this is just a short-term thing to, you know, get some gigs, and then just slipping the occasional original song in. And then when that ended, we, we went back to all originals pretty much from then on out. Yeah. So, what do you do after you worked at your parents' business? Well, yeah, they they ended up the the recession in the early '90s kind of forced them out of business, mm. and I had a one very unpleasant job for a very short time, and then I got a job doing um, tech support for a computer software company. So, how did you get involved in computers? I mean, did you have the technical well, I skills? Well, started. One of the things that happened was. It was actually born of a, another, even more painful band breakup. Maya and I f- um, formed a band called Syntax with three other people, and we um, had a man. We found a manager, and we all, you know, he invested some money, and we all pulled some money. Maya and I pulled a lot of money into um, going to a major studio and recording a, a six-song demo tape mm-hmm. to really try to get a, a recording contract. And we, you know, so we we poured, I think. $7,000 into this project, which for us was just a huge amount of money, especially sure. in the early A's, like in 1985. Mm. It was just a huge amount of money for us. Yeah. And the band broke up soon after we spent all that money. Oh, and boy. I and I were just really, really um, despondent about it. It was just and we just couldn't be trying to form another band. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to keep doing music. So Maya had bought herself a computer a little while before, a PC, and I was started reading about this new technology called MIDI, which allowed you to control synthesizers and, and stuff from computers. And I thought, well, gee, I could, you know, compose music on this and perform as a duo. So that's what we did. I mean, I ended up investing a fair amount of money over the years in racks of synthesizers and drum machines and, and MIDI-controlled light show. And we, per- we basically performed even more complicated, more intricate music than we'd ever done with a, with a live band with just two of us, you know, I was playing guitar and she was singing and, and the computer running everything else, you know, and I mm-hmm. basically created all the arrangements mm-hmm. at home. Mm-hmm. So I got into that and so I had a really good background in that sort of technology and a company called eMagic, which is actually a German-based company, it's a music software company, I happened to have the U.S. offices in the little town I lived in, Grass Valley, and a friend of mine uh, was involved with them and called me up and asked if I'd be interested in doing tech support for them. So in 
1995, I started doing that, and I've basically been doing that or variations of it ever since. Mm. Your website is www.mysticfig.com. Mm-hmm. And if somebody goes there, what are they going to find? Well, the website has information about the music that Maya and I are doing currently, and mm-hmm. also a lot of information about Maya's writing. You know, in terms of the musical stuff, it's got some pages dedicated to our album of original music, which is called Manhattan Sleeps. Mm-hmm. And then also um, another kind of side area we got into, which um, actually is where we do a lot of our performing, is as Maya's writing career took off, and we started, she started out writing mostly science fiction and fantasy, and we mm-hmm. attended a lot of science fiction conventions after she started getting published promote her books and her career, we discovered after, actually after a couple of years of attending them, that there's a fairly, a, a very active music scene at these things, hmm. and we started participating in that, so we've got a couple of albums that are um, called folk music, and it's basically kind of a variation of folk music, there's a whole hmm. long story of how that came to be, but it's the music that gets played at these um, science fiction conventions, and there are a lot of people all over the, all over the world who, who do this, and we've actually kind of carved a little niche for ourselves out in, the, in that area, and so we've recorded a couple of, of albums of um, parody songs, which are very popular in, uh, in those particular um, scenes, and we sell a lot of uh, CDs to, at the conventions we attend, and we get invited to perform at a lot of them. In the past year, we've been, been invited to be guests of honor at, I don't know, three or four conventions, and we're, we're going to be performing this coming year in Atlanta, near London, UK, Chicago, oh. you know, basically being invited to you know, special guests at these conventions. So it's, it's been really nice. Yeah, I played Come to Mordor mm-hmm. in, in Maya's interview. Yeah, So it's, it comes from the Beatles song, Come Together. Right. And then you replaced the original words with words, I guess, that come from the story of... Well, yeah, Mor- in that case, Mordor is sort of the, the land of evil in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right. where Sauron, the, 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 the Satan of, of Tolkien's world, is, is based. What I'm doing with, those, with these songs, and we, you know, like I said, we've got two CDs of them, and we'll probably do another one in the future after I, I finish the, the original album that we're working on right now. Mm-hmm. They're parodies of basically a lot of the same kind of rock songs that I grew up playing you know, in bands when I was a kid in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So that's a parody of Come, Come Together, and we've got parodies of all kinds of other songs. Every Little Thing She Does is Magic by the Police, or Reeling in the Years by Steely Dan, and I just, you know, sort of like Weird Al, mm-hmm. I just write alternate humorous lyrics to the... Because of we're mostly performing this stuff at these science fiction conventions, very often I choose either science fiction or fantasy themes, although not always. Right. So you have to sort of know what you're talking about in the this, in this song, in the parody. Yeah, it kind of helps to have, well, I, I think that's true with most parodies, yeah. the person listening to it ideally is familiar with the original song that you're doing the parody of, and also the subject that you're changing the lyric to talk about. Right, so, yeah. So, Jeff, what's your current project? Well, I'm, I'm working on a couple of things right now. We're working on a, a new album of original songs, tentatively going to be titled Mobius Street, which is the title of one of the songs on the album. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's not carved in stone yet. We might call it something else. So I'm still tracking that and, and actually still writing some of the material that's going to go on it. 
And I'm also going to be starting work on producing an album for somebody else, probably in a few months. We've got some upcoming appearances. Like I said, we'll be appearing in Georgia in January and in the UK in February, also in Chicago in June. Mm-hmm. So what's involved with producing an album? Really, for me, it's taking someone who is just basically is a singer. I'm working with a, a very talented woman named Shauna McGuire who writes songs but doesn't play an instrument. So she basically comes up with melodies and lyrics I'm going to be coming up with all of the arrangements for the songs, mm. working with her, you know, make sure that they match what she wants for the song, mm-hmm. and then ba- basically wrangling all the other musicians who will be involved. In this case, probably not too many. I'll probably play most of the stuff, the instruments on this particular project, mm-hmm. recording it and mixing it, and probably in this case mastering it, because I, I doubt if she'll have the budget to hire a, a, another mastering engineer. Mm-hmm and then sending it off to the duplicators to be manufactured. Mm. Basically, kind of combination of recording engineer and artistic consultant, I guess. Mm-hmm. What would you like to do in the future? Or do you have a project that, or a vision of a project in the future that you would like to do? Um, you know, there are all kinds of things. I mean, I, I, I just really love working in the studio. I love experimenting mm. with sounds and, and creating atmospheres with, with music and sound. Mm. Um, I would love to be doing this full-time some capacity. Yeah. Maya and I also perform a lot for our local Baha'i community. Mm-hmm. I would always looking for opportunities to, to do that. We've been involved with the music industry weekends at Bosch um, several times, although we missed the last couple because of because we were performing elsewhere, but mm-hmm. um, I think we'll be probably attending this year. So about a year ago, was worked with um, several other Baha'i producers with um, Kelly Snook and Jerome Matthew and with Catherine Kripke's executive producing, we, we did a CD of quotations from the Ruhi 2 book, Set to Music. Okay, let's do a little bit of explanation for folks who are not so familiar with Baha'i faith. You mentioned the Bosch Baha'i School, which is a Baha'i learning center in uh, Northern California. Yes, uh, in the mountains uh, near Santa Cruz. Uh-huh. And they have Pretty much every weekend they have presentations and classes on various aspects of the Baha'i faith and spirituality. And Michael Eisinger, who runs a web-based Baha'i radio station called Radio Neuer, has been sponsoring these music industry weekends for the past several years where he invites Baha'i musicians, professional musicians, people working in various capacities, whether producers, performers, composers, whatnot, mm-hmm. and also just anybody interested in pursuing music, whether they're currently a professional or not, mm-hmm. to basically consult about what what the future of Baha'i music might be, um, whether we can perhaps build a different kind of music industry uh, from the one that uh, we all have to deal with now. And what would that what would that industry, music industry look like? I honestly don't know yet. I, I think it's too early to tell, and it would be nice to think that, that, that perhaps music with more substance would become more mm. popular with people in general in mm-hmm. the future, and that the way it's marketed might be, I don't know, somewhat more based on the merits of the music than is currently the case, but I, I don't really like to get off into whining how things are, because <laughs> it just uh, it, it sounds like sour grapes, because I haven't made it, and all these other people have, but, you know, I and I, and I don't really feel that way, um, mm-hmm. but I do think that most people involved in the music industry today agree that it's 
you know, it's it's not an optimal situation now. The way music is, is made and distributed is mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily reward the right people. Do you think the internet, in some way, has changed that? I think it's changing. It's just certainly shifting, and I, I, I'm far from an authority on everything that's going on. But I mean, certainly there are people who are finding ways to promote themselves outside of the normal music industry uh, structure. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. It's still, you know, the internet is a, a big, big place, and, and getting mm-hmm. yourself noticed is is hard. Right. But some people are definitely managing to do it, and and there are people even, you know, beyond the internet, people who are building successful careers for themselves outside of the normal music industry without relying completely on the internet. I'm thinking of, I don't know if you're familiar with a musician named Annie DeFranco. Sounds familiar. Yeah, she's she has a very, very respectable following. She records all her own stuff. She distributes it herself. You know, she's not beholden to a major label, so she doesn't sell anything like the units that a, a hit album from a major label does, but she mm-hmm. sees a huge percentage of the of the profit from what she does sell right. and i think i i don't know the details of her her career and her numbers but i think that she actually makes probably a better living than some of the people who you would think are are making tons of money because they're so well known but right. actually who only make pennies on every cd they sell right. I, I think annie is a particularly well organized and she's a very talented musician i mean she's a great great songwriter i mean so she deserves every bit of success she gets mm-hmm. and she's found a way to work outside the the system that most people have had to had to work with and, you know so mm-hmm. but that i think she's kind of an exception because she's just really really talented at, at, at promoting herself in a in the way she wants to be promoted mm-hmm. i'm not sure everybody can do that but mm-hmm. yeah i think the internet is, is a possible avenue it's just you know there's so many of us out there on the internet and still getting people to go to your site and you know, maybe right. spend a little money on your music is right. probably uh, as hard as ever. Right. You know, and maybe we need to rethink what success really means because I, yeah. I look at you and Maya and you're basically making a living doing what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And there are so many musicians that do what they want to do at night and they have a day job. Where, yeah. Whereas I think my impression from talking to both of you that you're doing exactly what you want to do and you're able to make a living on it and and continue in that vein. And yeah, to me, well, I, you know, Maya definitely is. Yeah. Um, I do have still have a day job. I like my job, but it's not, I'm not... The tech I, support I stuff? working with music software right. on a more technical level, and that's right. fine. You know, I would love to be actually doing music for a living yeah. somehow, but... Right. I, you know, I long ago stopped, you know, pining for the, you know, that big break and the, the major label contract and all that stuff because I, I honestly don't believe that that would be the best thing for us right now. Right. So we have a tremendous amount of fun and satisfaction in yeah. what we do musically when we do play, you know, whether it's for the Baha'i community or at the science fiction conventions. We are playing for audiences who are actually interested in listening to us. That's nice. Not because it's cool or, you know, because it's some sort of social thing, but because they're actually interested in, in hearing what we have to say lyrically and, and in hearing our music. And that's very gratifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I would much rather do that than be paid a lot of money to play for people who really don't care. Yeah. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeff Bonhoff, a Baha'i musician, composer, and musical producer living in California. The music that you will hear in conclusion is from Jeff and Maya Bonhoff. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Shove you 
Let some tow truck shove you. You better let some tow truck shove you before it's too
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.